Kia ora and welcome to the Happy Revolution podcast. My name is Irene and today I'm joined by my co-host Mika. In this episode, we chat to journalist and dear friend Shanti Mathias. Shanti is a writer and journalist working for the spin-off after finishing her degree in anthropology and English literature with honours at Tehiringawaka Victoria University of Wellington. We chat with Shanti about the role of media in society and politics, sensationalism, cycling, her experiences in journalism and what gives her hope. Thanks for listening. Okay, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Very happy to be here. Very excited to have you. Mm-hmm. We're big fans. Mika, do you want to ask the first question? I, I can do. Shanti, you're a brilliant journalist. What has been, so far in your career, your favourite article that you've written and worked on? Um, definitely the article I wrote about getting internet to the Chatham Islands. Partially because I felt very pleased with myself thinking up a way to make my work pay for my travel, um, which I've been doing lots of creative thinking about this year. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I worked on it for a really long time. It was just incredibly difficult and I talked to so many people and it was like so overwhelming I felt so out of my depth and I like learned so much from doing it but also it was just a it was way too long it took way too long to edit and I had just a bunch of like bad things happening to my editors well not what if I editors got COVID and it was like took way longer than it should have been to get edited because of that but anyway it was a lovely it was a really lovely experience and rewarding to just be very thoughtfully edited by my editor Maddie and talk to lots of amazing people and just sort of feel like I was actually I often feel like so much of the journalism I do at the moment is by and for middle class New Zealand and getting to do something a little bit outside of that was um yeah I think really good for me it's a really big world I've got lots of articles that I've enjoyed writing a lot and been really excited about it's a long could be a long list um I really love doing the one about a shorter one about people learning their ancestral languages from language apps, which I think really gets to the heart of, like, looking at the ways that technology and culture and kind of ideas of, like, power and capitalism, how they all intersect in people's identities and how they think of and relate to each other. So that was really cool as well. I really enjoyed your article a while back now on NFTs. Oh. <laughs> that, that was such a, like, interesting deep dive into that subculture the NFT party. Yeah, that's a funny one, actually. I got more feedback about that than I've gotten from anything else I've ever written, which I guess is good. Um, but yeah, I think it, like, it kind of wasn't really my idea, and I had to like, do some real sweet talking to get an invite to that NFT party. But <laughs> anyway, that was yeah, that was kind of a good experience, being very out of my depth. But, oh, it's so hard. I felt like I was almost being cruel, and I've, prob- I've burned some bridges with those people, for sure. The publicist sent me some emails mm-hmm. afterwards. I don't think I, like, distorted the truth at all, but they gave me great content and I wrote it up, but uh, it's, it's so hard to know how you kind of can be, like, compassionate towards people, but I also don't have much sympathy for people who are, like, burning a lot of money and in investing in crypto, so it's difficult. My favourite one was about democracy. I think you wrote an article about... Is it a beginner's guide to yeah, local government? Yeah, how to vote in local elections. It was really helpful. I, I enjoyed putting that together. I had about 50 tabs open on my laptop because mm. it's incredibly inconvenient to all of this information that's on really different systems and it's not centralised at all, which no. sucks for people and it's bad for democracy, but I guess it was good that you can get things, to someone to pull it together who gets paid for it like me. Mm. <laughs> Otherwise it's quite hard for individuals. Particularly with people who don't understand it or don't have the time. Yeah, definitely. That sort of media making uh, democracy that 
more accessible. It's very, very crucial, I think. And lacking. Mm. You've done a, f- a fair bit on local democracy in uh, your time recent, at the spin-off, right? Yeah, re- in recent times. It's actually quite interesting because in 2019, when the elections happened and I was working at Salient, like, did heaps and heaps of local government coverage and got quite into it then. And just like a lot of people in local elections, didn't do heaps in the years in between. And then, yeah, kind of got assigned, kind of talked myself into doing it this year, which mm. I think will be quite good. It's a bit different for journalism that I normally do. I'm normally quite like, let's think of a topic and then find some people to explore it, but it's a bit more event-based. So I just thought it would actually be quite a good experience for me. And, yeah, got a... I just got my work to agree that I could be one of the people kind of assigned to cover it, so that was good. What articles are you excited to write about in the future? I've got one that I like have been wanting to work on for about four months that I just have not been able to because of other things taking too long. Be assigned to write articles I don't really want to write. That's <laughs> the rules of the game. But really want to do one about supply chains and shipping and the way that I have a really I might have to like scale down the scope of what I think the article could do but I would really love to do one looking at the way that when you buy something online it feels really effortless and you click something and it arrives at your door but actually going into I don't really have the scope or resources to be able to start it where it comes from in the factory but to be like from when it arrives in the port what are all the steps of labor and like human hands who might have touched your object before you do and I just really would love to find Anyway, I have a very clear idea of how I want to do this story, and it's going to be an enormous amount of work. So, <laughs> fingers crossed, I can make that happen this year. I would really love to do another really in-depth thing. And then I guess thinking a little bit more long-term, I would love to do some time doing journalism in India, and I'd love to... I'm really interested in how to think about, like, the way that your kind of personal writing can intertwine with journalism, and really good journalism, magazine journalism, which I'm particularly interested in, can do that. It's sort of like, it's not about me, but also I can humanise it in a way that, and I can give myself words in a way that I feel a bit uncomfortable doing with other people. So I'd love to go back to the remote Himalayan Valley, which I grew up in, and look at how big infrastructure projects shape remote communities, because I think there's a really, that's a really interesting example of the valley I grew up in is now completely different because they've got big hydro dams going in, they've got big tunnels, um, big highway projects, and thinking about both what does that do to those communities, but also what does it say about the Indian state and it, the way it kind of is wanting to distribute power and put its presence there. So if I have the ability to do that in the next, like, four or five years to do a really good job of that story and get someone to pay me to do it, I would love that. That's, like, one of my dreams. I'm interested to hear how you, you talked before about writing for but by and for middle class New Zealand and then also about making these stories accessible to people who might otherwise not be able to access mm. uh, media or journalism as easily particularly if there's lots of resources in all sorts of different places like with local government stuff in New Zealand how do you strike that balance between writing I guess about people for example in, in the Chatham Islands and writing for people, if that, if that makes sense. Like, how can you, particularly I think with magazine writing, if magazine is mm-hmm. writing is something where you have an opportunity to really engage with people, but if that story isn't then, like, for them, and then just gets read by middle-class New Zealand, you know, mm. how can you strike some of that balance and make, make your journalism more accessible? So you're asking how do I think about the ways that... 
the traditional people who consume journalism and who continue, in fact, to consume journalism, how I think about the ways that what I write is for those people who are most of the people who pay for journalism and how I think about wanting the really powerful things that journalism can do of uplifting marginalised voices and so on to make it accessible to the truly marginalised. I mean, if you think about history, like in the Western world, most power and money has really been concentrated in the traditional demographic that we always take a stab at, the sort of middle-aged, well-educated, rich white men. And to some extent, that's how our media traditions developed, is giving those men, mostly men, (laughs) um, information to make their decisions and move their money around. That's that's part of the history of journalism. It's these sort of working class histories of journalism as well. But I think that's where a lot of, especially magazine journalism, that more kind of prestigious, glossy kind of stuff of telling these powerful people about the world that they live in because they love to feel educated. They love to feel like they're thinking about other parts of the world. But ultimately, it's actually giving them tools through which to understand themselves. Um, And I think in some ways I really fit into that well-educated, middle-class demographic in my family history, especially on the Indian side of my family, there's quite a lot of kind of wealth and power and collaboration with the colonisers, um, which is something to reckon with in its own sense. Um, I don't think I've reached a kind of resolution to that because there's really cool stuff you can do on social media platforms, but I think social media platforms are also have their own agendas for anything that you put on them. But I guess perhaps if you really want to be like McLuhanism, the medium is the message perhaps that true of the internet anything you put on the internet is ultimately going to be a quest for attention and by attention that somebody is making money not necessarily the journalist which is perhaps a kind of incoherent way to say that I'm really not sure but I think that I love the form of journalism I love the idea that there are people in society who are part of society and are also trying to reflect back and think really critically about society and um, in collaboration with places like academia and we're, we're all of that kind of quite thoughtful. we thoughtful people are saying there are things that are good about the world and there are things that could be better. I'm not sure what a picture of that looks like because I just love writing and I'm not sure who reads. Um, I was reading something, a feature in North and South this month, which is August 2022, in case anyone's listening afterwards, um, about literacy in New Zealand and how about one in five New Zealanders struggle with literacy, even if they can read and write for basic tasks. And yeah, like, writing is so important to me and so important for how I understand the world, but I think it's also not, for a lot of people, it's actually a really difficult way to engage and I don't know quite how to reckon with my love of writing and my love of reading with the fact that for a lot of people that's not a useful way to understand the world. Mm. Um, which is to say that I really do not, I don't have answers. Um, but I think it's really important to be thoughtful about who has power and who's power you're reflecting and what kind of identities you're forming. I think a lot of stuff that's published off, like, you know, any sort of hilarious journalism, like childhood nostalgia or everything, everyone gets this from the dairy kind of stuff, creates a sort of particular idea of who a New Zealander is and who's expected to read those articles and, yeah, kind of capitalise on certain forms of nostalgia which are not shared by everyone. So I don't really know where all that's going, but I want to keep being thoughtful about it and hopefully find other people in the media and beyond who are being thoughtful about it too and being aware of the way that the media, in fact, collaborates with 
you know, a, de a divisive political system where you can kind of report on politics if it's a race between ideas and people is actually advantageous to the media because people will click on things for their kind of dramatic tension and the way that the, you know, certain kinds of ideas flourish more in universities will also benefit the media because they report on that and then people will click the most sort of extreme headline extrapolated from a study which is extrapolating from I know, something done in mice or something, which is maybe not as life-changing as it wants to be. And perhaps that's just to do with, like, as human beings, we gravitate towards particularly dramatic narratives. Anyway, that answer went all over the place. As a, as a journalist, then, how would you recommend we engage with media? Read widely and watch watch widely. I'm very online, perhaps to my detriment. It is really interesting to see what happens online and how certain kinds of language become, or ways of speaking, or ways of writing headlines become quite prevalent. But I think one thing that I would really recommend is kind of looking at things in the background a bit, like media and, and bookshops and stuff tend to prioritise the new, the new thing. It's a, called a newspaper for a reason. Um, so going in, going a bit into the past and being like, where do these ideas come from? Or thinking about like, what is this publication doing? Being kind of attentive to that. Because I read a lot of media, I can be like, okay, this publication does this kind of thing regularly, publishing a really divisive article that will get a lot of attention on Twitter, for example. Or this publication is doing, yeah, this TV show is using these kind of clips in this sort of kind of quite a misleading way, possibly. Yeah, and I think knowing your own community really well and seeing how that's reflected in media, whether it's people you know or just like events that you maybe have your own perspective on, I think that's a really good place to start. If your community has some media coverage, I think that's a really good way to be like, okay, this is what I understood of what had happened from what I heard from people who were there or from, you know, you t told me that you went down to the parliament processes just to see what was going on and being able to <laughs> compare that to the way that it was reported in the media and will, I think there'll be, there's a stuff documentary about that coming out in a few weeks that could be an interesting thing for you to watch, for example, being like, what was, what was the kind of way that I understood that compared to how the media was presenting it? That's a really good starting place. Um, you were talking about this trend towards dramatic headlines and sensationalism in the media. Do you find that happens a lot in your work? And how can people be aware of that? And also, is there any possibility of like a trend away from that? I guess just in terms of process, like things that are phrased in interesting or standout ways are much more likely to make it into an article. Someone has a really good metaphor, if somebody has a really striking kind of fair phrase. Um, and human emotion as well is a quite powerful thing. So when people say, I felt like this, that's quite a powerful thing to put into an article. And then I guess, in some ways, sensationalist media goes on that feeling of creating a feeling in you, which can be like incredibly powerful. It's not always going to be working for bad, necessarily. For a climate change literature class I did a few years ago, we read a book by this Indian author called Amitav Ghosh, which is non-fiction, which is called The Great Derangement, and it's about climate change. Um, and the first section of the book focuses on how we actually don't have narratives to understand climate change. We've kind of, if you look at news coverage of climate change, you can get the super abstract sort of 
the sea level rise is predicted to go up by this much according to a new study done by these scientists, or you have the kind of more specific, this natural disaster is linked to climate change, um, say, say, says the scientist about the floods in Bangladesh. But actually, that narrative is not saying all these small things around the world, and big things, are linked, and there's very clear causality. Um, journalism isn't necessarily, and human narratives, aren't necessarily very equipped to understand that. I think there's actually quite a lot of ways that things change gradually that perhaps academics might trace more than journalism can. But that slower, sort of long-read feature, journalism can do that at its very best. So it's sort of that idea that, I mean, I don't know how much the... Uh, the hero's journey plot. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. It's a sort of idea that you've got like kind of 14 key points and you can sort of trace it through different mythologies of, you know, the hero starts something and there's a there's a challenges to overcome and there's a kind of climax where the great evil is defeated and then there's something at the end and the hero comes back home and something fundamental has changed about them. Um, but almost like climate change and quite a lot of other stories aren't about individuals. They're about societies and they're about these kind of quite big scale forces and those are harder to write about. Yeah, I don't think there's necessarily any one solution, um, but I do think that there's some really interesting kind of idea of like slow slow journalism or slow news or the forces driving the news, um, which you get a bit with like explainer journalism. I think some of that is quite good and actually the more diversity you have in journalists and in newsrooms and especially in business models I think is quite good for being able to be quite responsive to the needs of different communities rather than being very focused on one particular event I don't know I also think that's probably something else where I don't have many answers but I find it a really interesting thing to contemplate um but yeah that idea that we don't necessarily have the storytelling structures to understand some of the current crises facing the world because we want stories about individuals and we actually need stories about communities. I think probably writing stories about communities and writing stories about, like, like everyone's just like, oh, not everyone, but often it's like, I don't want to read the news, the news is bad, the news is stressful. So I think thinking really seriously about hope as a journalist is really important. Not necessarily, this terrible thing is happening, but on the bright side, people are coming together. How inspirational. <laughs> But yeah, thinking about what does it mean to say, like, this is true, but, you know, for me, as, like, somebody with a faith, I'm like, it is also true that God is good and God is working for good. And I don't necessarily have a sense of what that looks like or even know how to write about that, but I can say that it's true and that needs to inform, like, how I talk to people and how I write. I don't really know what to ask, and it's not on here, but I'd like to ask about your obsession with cycling. You are an avid cyclist. <laughs> How does this obsession shape your life and who you are as a person? I think cycling... Oh, there's so much I could say about cycling. I just love it. It's taken me a, t a while to, like, realise how much I love it. And part of that is, like, people treat it as really unusual. They're like, oh, you're cycling, are you all right? Do you need a ride? Like, is it fine? And, but, yeah, just, like, I just think cycles are very cool machines and I've been yeah, volunteering in a bike fixing thing and going to bike fixing courses so I'm better at bi fixing bikes than I used to be um <laughs> so you, you know I'm not sure if you remember me at the time I got like really upset and started crying because I couldn't fix my bike um but <laughs> I'm not I'm much better than that now um 
I think like I grew up cycling everywhere like in Christchurch with my parents and we had like a bike trailer and then I didn't, I didn't cycle that much when I lived in India and then when I kind of came back the first like three or four months I lived in Wellington I just felt like I was going to die every time I went biking in the city and then I got a bit better at biking I think there's something about we really like as human beings being in systems that we understand if I want to be like philosophical about it that's what I'd say which is a bike it's all visible like a car how it works is under under a hood on a bus both the way that things are priced and the engine itself is also under wraps you can't see it but a bike you can actually see the chain going around and it's also just very very responsive to your body walking is also great but like the bike is a sort of really interesting you know you lean and the bike leans and you can turn your hands and you actually, you're actually way more in control and you have way better visibility than you do in a car. I think people really like that. Plus it's just actually a relationship to your own body of being like, I can get places on my own two legs. I really love how that makes me feel like it's cheap and it's not dependent on petrol and I have a lot of control. And there's just like, I think a lot of like transformative stuff about how cities work and how human beings relate to each other. Like there's a pleasure is really important and I know that biking isn't for everyone or isn't for everyone yet and there's heaps of factors that go into why people may or may not enjoy biking part of that is traffic and infrastructure part of that is how we're expected to like relate to our own bodies and mm. it's really good that there's lots of to always have lots of versions of different transport for people but for me like I feel really good on a bike I love like biking in the quiet darkness I love you know feeling really strong when I bike up a hill I love being able to like feel the wind on my face. I love going a little bit more slowly than you do in a car and actually being able to notice things. Yeah, there's just there's a serious pleasure there. And I think a bike, riding a bike reminds me that like pleasure is a really important part of transformation and I guess the idea of embodiment of like being in your body. Um, a bike is a great reminder of that for me. And I think lots of people need that, whatever that looks like in their lives. If that's going for a walk, if that's enjoying a cup of tea, as trite as it sounds. Yeah, thinking seriously about pleasure, pleasure is very important for the revolution. Yeah, I totally agree. I think biking is an amazing form of transport, and I love biking myself. From being from Nelson originally, Nelson's quite a safe place to do. Nelson does not have an extensive or good bike network, but it's nothing like Wellington. I think in my entire childhood and teenage years in Nelson, I had two accidents with careless drivers while I was on a bicycle hmm. and in Wellington been here for a year and a half I've almost died like four times mm -hmm. just from a small regular bike trip that I make just from my flat to campus mm -hmm. or to other people's houses mm -hmm. and I don't bike anywhere near as frequently as I do in Nelson do you have any thoughts on how we can make as a society biking more of a viable safe and attractive form of transport whether that be in terms of local government investing in infrastructure or whether that be in terms of like training people equipping people enabling people onto bikes what about like for example the electric scooters could we do something like that with bikes yeah i think there's heaps of really cool things that we can do on bikes i think there's the truth is that like different things are going to work differently for different people I mean, one simple thing that has been mentioned by many other people, but, like, there's a, you, get, you get a tax rebate on buying electric cars in New Zealand, 
um, which is still extremely expensive and something that is really just like the middle class people who want to feel a little bit better about their kind of commute of driving half an hour every day to drop their children off at swimming practice or whatever it is. But we don't have anything rebate on electric bikes. There's a whole lot of like resource stuff about how those electric batteries are made as well, which is probably not worth getting into. But um, it's worth reading a bit about, I think. But yeah, I think making electric bikes more accessible for people because there's so many people. I mean, if, to go back to the embodiment thing, we've got a lot of things we like. We just actually taught to not like and not trust our bodies. The infrastructure is really important of making biking feel safe as well as be safe. Like biking actually isn't that unsafe, but it often the perception of danger all the times you have a near miss are actually make you feel in danger even if you didn't actually get hurt but yeah that kind of idea of like we're not actually in relationship to our bodies and I think electric bikes are maybe it because you actually need less of your own physical strength can really help with that as a beginning point for people to get people on bikes I mean I feel a little bit more involved with like Auckland bike stuff now and was at a meeting for the bike place that I volunteer at and just trying to think of like how do we how do we get more people on bikes not just the people who come in wanting to fix their bikes but like do we get kids to have a go do we do like training stuff in schools get people to start young do we make maps for people do we offer like if you've got a ride we'll we'll do like your first commute with you I don't know that's all like very <laughs> kind of resource intensive but there's heaps of really cool stuff that yeah moving our bodies and fixing things together and sort of relating to the place that you live because if you think about like a motorway versus a cycleway motorways have walls around them you're actually not seeing the land around you at all a cycleway you're like seeing both nature and streets and other people's faces you're actually relating to the place where you are and the places where you go so I think bikes are just such a great starting point for that um, and I'm really just interested <laughs> I'm really interested in cities as well and like what it means to live in a city and what it means a lot of us live in cities um and bikes are just such a great way to be in cities and traffic is such a terrible way to be being in your car and traffic is such a terrible way to be in a city so yeah so much i could say about bikes <laughs> um you spoke previously when i think you connected to the last question about how pleasure and joy equals revolution but i wasn't mm. quite sure what the connection was can you speak more to that um I think it's a little bit like people, it's really great having theory, like I like reading theory and then I'm not at all in communist spaces, but the vague things I know about some of the communists who I love, um, there's a big, there's a big emphasis on the theory and the big ideas and like goodness knows I love like getting my teeth into big ideas, but you need more than ideas, like a lot of the idea of, I don't know, liberation is about how we relate to each other and that it's a good thing for people to be in relationship to each other and I think pleasure can be a really a way to actually understand when you know I'm not stressed about paying rent this week I can I don't know enjoy the food that I eat more and that's a pleasurable thing and if I enjoy that then you can kind of magnify that at scale okay there's you know 5,000 people in the city who are super stressed because they are going to have three dollars in their bank account once their like automatic payment for their rent goes through but for me I've got a student allowance or I've got support from friends or I'm living in a cheaper flat and I don't need to worry about that anymore and look how much easier it is for me to feel happy and relaxed when I'm not worried about that 
and I actually want that for other people because I'm a human being and I care about other people and I'm made to love other people and when there are things which are I guess structures of oppression it's harder for me to love other people and it's harder for me to love being myself the self that I was made to be I don't know there's a lot of things about how when we are more relaxed and in relationship with each other there's just a lot of joy to be had and pleasure is a really serious part of that and I think that's a really that's where it clicks you know when it's like it's not just that it's an idea it's actually it's not something abstract it's something that I personally experience and because I've personally experienced it like I care about other people experiencing it too. Um, I'm curious you talked a bit before about local government and then also about dramatic headlines and politics and how would you say as a journalist do you engage with politics how does your work and then also how does working in the media inform your own engagement on a personal level yeah i think obviously nothing is without a political dimension which i guess is a good starting point that everyone comes from a certain point of view there's a idea in journalism that journalism should be fully objective which there's been quite a lot of pushback against because no human being is objective like in the way that you select quotes for a story even if that's all that you're doing and you've you're sort of theoretically interviewing both sides you have exercised your own judgment and bias in how you do that and and how you phrase the questions and how who you called for the task and questions in the first place you know this it's so well documented that part of the like oil industry pushed having anti-climate change experts to journalists to be like well you need to have both sides of the climate change debate which is is climate change real or not um and you can have both sides of the climate change debate which could be how do how ways that we respond to the truth of climate change but anyway that's held us back a lot as rich and powerful people who want to respond to climate change or societies that want to respond to climate change yeah so i think being able to say how being kind of thoughtful, I had a media studies degree, being thoughtful, like, how do my own biases affect how I'm reading and understanding this? Like, is it coming from a media outlet? I normally would dismiss a bit. Is it coming from News Talk ZB or something? It's a good starting point of, like, how am I reading this? Um, how do the things that I believe are true impact what I think this person is trying to say? And then I think also in terms of, like, understanding the kind of political dimensions, like, what are, what are the people here trying to say and what is this journalist trying to do? So, yeah, I think when I have time being kind of thoughtful about that, and often when I've, like, got, like, you know, 50 tabs open and I'm trying to kind of compile something for an article, I'll be like, okay, this person covered it this way, this person covered it that way, and you can take a step back. So I guess a lot of what I seem to be saying is, like, take a step back, be thoughtful, be slow, um, which an under-resourced media system doesn't often have, doesn't always have people who are able to do that, taking a step back kind of thing. Yeah, I guess, so I guess that that also influences my work I don't think I'm an unbiased agent and I'm not interested in being one I do think I can interview people who I disagree with and include their points of view without compromising or something because you know those people can still have valuable things to say and goodness knows I really want to like learn things I don't know already I wouldn't always be able to articulate how my politics impacts what I actually write and what questions I actually look at but I know I look at a lot of things that other people do and think no <laughs> I'm not going to do that or I don't like how they frame that so I guess I do have opinions or kind of like immediate visceral responses to what other people say which can be quite a useful piece of information for how you frame your own questions 
I don't think I could be a journalist if I wasn't seriously interested in other people's points of view, including people whose points of view I disagree with. Yeah. There's so much to learn from how other people think and why do they think it and what brought them to that point. So I guess I am really interested in, like, what does it mean to have an opinion and why do we have opinions? Our opinions are not divorced from our contexts, but I hope that I am good at hearing from people I disagree with and hopefully, like, loving people I disagree with because... There's no people in the world who I agree with completely. And I think that's a really that's a really good starting place of being like, you are important and valid and I don't agree with what you have to say. And yeah, I do really care about other people's points of view and I hope that I can convey people's points of view. And I like that I can be on the phone with someone and they can't see my face and I can like go like <laughs> you, the podcast couldn't see that but I made a face um, without them seeing it and with hopefully it not influencing my reporting or my respect for them mm. some people have terrible opinions though yes agreed <laughs> we have Rain and I have our fair share of disagreements as well but we still manage to work to, to work and to live together I, I don't actually think we have this is news to me no, well, I think just our main disagreement it's is democracy. about democracy. Which we debated briefly whether we should ask you about democracy on the podcast because you are very engaged in all that kind of stuff. But. Okay, okay. Let, let me just do my like quick take on democracy because you brought it up. I think democracy is often invoked as like a neutral good. Like It is a good thing to have democracy no matter what. And I just don't think that is true at all. And there's a sort of worship that a lot of people have of democracy. That said, I think I don't know of good alternatives to democracy because I actually think autocracy and <laughs> anything where there are single people making a lot of decisions does not turn out that well. But I mean, a lot of people are really not necessarily very good at thinking in ways that are going to be and voting in ways that are good for the long term health of themselves and others. <laughs> I don't want to like worship democracy. A great example of this is. For example, one of the reasons that Health New Zealand has been created and we no longer, this local government elections, we will not have to vote for DHB people is like, in theory, it's a great idea that you can vote for some of the people who are making decisions about health and healthcare in your area. In practice, the institutions that were providing healthcare were very screwed up and most people were actually not that able to be informed about what good healthcare decision-making looks like and also there's a lot of factors that go into that that are um you don't actually understand how those decisions are being made and it's actually really complex which means it actually doesn't work that well for democracy when it's complex like that hmm. anyway thoughts on democracy it's not neutral good but it can work for good often yeah we can have had a few debates i agree with that yeah i mean i think the alternative is not a dictatorship <laughs> but perhaps an actual actual democracy where we get to engage because you said that you you talked about how the alternative is just a few people holding power and making decisions for everyone else but it actually feels like that a lot of the it time. is like that already that's yeah. so true and yeah if we had true processes of democracy where we got to engage in really interesting and useful dialogue but there's actually that a lot is... of other things that have to change about like education and systems because as it is, if, if there were more people engaging in dialogue, you would actually just have a lot of people who aren't that well... I mean, you have MPs in Parliament who aren't that well-equipped to deal with decision-making, but you would actually have a lot of people who aren't that well-equipped to think about these dialogues. Because when you're really stressed about your daily life, or when you've been told all your life that, like, taxes are bad, then 
you're engaging in decisions that's going to you're like okay well taxes are bad i don't have enough money i want less taxes and it actually means that there's a whole lot of other things that make your life work that are made more invisible that you aren't going to see and maybe it's just like human beings are just so bad at long-term thinking and when we vote that includes when we vote we're bad at long-term thinking i do think that democracy has the opportunity to be deepened like what you were saying rain i'd actually agree that i think more decision-making power needs to be handed over to people and there need to be structures to support people to make some of those decisions, whether it be, for example, a basic income so that people don't need to be stressed mm. and um, worried about their, where they work or where their next paycheck is coming from so they actually have the space in their lives to engage more in how decisions are made. And then through that, I think there is like a real... Um, relational aspect of decision making that comes when you empower people to make decisions about their neighbourhoods and about their their lives and their societies and how those are structured in the sense that like if I have on my street a pothole and you live two blocks over in a different suburb and you haven't had running water for two weeks and we get together and we make our decision and we're talking about the issues of like, where do we want our budget or the money that we've got pulled to go, then I actually can understand and have sympathy that your problem is probably a lot worse than mine. And I can probably live with a pothole outside my street until we have more money in our collective pool. And that also, then that builds like people work together and compromise and get to know each other. And I know you better through that decision making process. And also we both have more power to be a community together rather than someone just fixing it or in Wellington's case, not fixing anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely we have a long ways to go with democracy. But I do think that, and maybe democracy isn't the right word for... Collective decision-making, maybe. Collective decision-making. But that is also referred to as deliberative democracy, which is a wonderful concept. Which we don't have in this country. Which we don't have in this country. Because democracy was designed for the sort of wealthy, powerful people with lots of disposable income and other people to do domestic labour and, mm. in fact, all of the labour, you know, that th- they could make decisions while other people did labour. And it works really well if you've just got, like, certain people in society making decisions for themselves. But when, when you're actually saying, oh, we want more people to be included, but also uh, those people, it something gets, like, way more complex because the needs, when you have way more people with more complex needs voting, it actually gets harder to represent all those points of view and that's mm. maybe part of why there's like democracy is quite chaotic and divisive at this present moment yeah i mean marx would say democracy is or rather democracies just create councils of the bourgeoisie <laughs> to regulate and perpetuate an oppressive system of capitalism mm. there you go speaking about democracy what you've already touched on this a little bit, but what makes you hopeful for the future, and what does personal and interpersonal and social transformation look like mm-hmm. in light of your work and your life? Oh my goodness, there's just like I just feel so profoundly hopeful, and maybe it starts with attention. Like I can pay attention to beautiful things, and I can have amazing conversations, and they just fill me with life, and I that's a sort of really good place to start from of like there is so much life within myself and what I can notice I can notice oh the other day I went for a run and there were like these 
this spider web like bead with drops of dew and then I was like <laughs> I was doing <laughs> this is, I feel like now I'm like humble bragging but I like ran up one of the small mountains um, Maunga, near me and, and I was doing like squats on the top because like the mountain isn't that high and the, and the sunlight was coming through the like the trees and like as my head was moving up and down it was like it was like sparkling I was like this is so beautiful I love love it, living in this body so maybe that's and I can pay attention to things and they can be beautiful and like there's infinite beauty to pay attention to which gives me a lot of hope. Like, I have a long life of getting to notice beautiful things and have beautiful conversations. So maybe that's the personal transformation. Um, I guess the personal transformation that gives me hope is, like, I can think about who I used to be and it was worse than I am right now. I'm learning and growing all the time and growing into the grace of God and into the woman that God wants me to be. And I just think, like, yeah, loving, loving people and being loved just gives me hope and I just know that that can happen over and over maybe it goes back to what I was saying about pleasure like my own experiences of being loved and the things that make it easier for me to to do so and to receive love and to give love I guess some of it is privilege some of it is yeah the kind of places I live those give me hope and I know I know that it is possible to make it the world like more just more whole more like the kingdom of God, like to make it as like beautiful as it as it should be, and that can happen for more people. It's not just about me, um, but I am the place where I start understanding the world. So maybe that's why I start thinking about myself, and it just operates at scales. Um, I was talking to my pastor the other day. Um, I don't even know exactly what we're talking about. I think ah, uh, my hopes for transformation and change and more justice and goodness in the world. And she was saying she had this metaphor that she'd got from a podcast she listened to about fractals and fractals are these you know geometric patterns that they're sort of you can zoom in and in and in, it's the same pattern you zoom out and out and out it's the same pattern and like I know within for myself that I can like create relationships of like justice and love not perfect because I'm human but like I can have that in my own life and because and because I have that in my own life I believe that that can happen for other people I believe that it's possible to you know, act with more gentleness towards the earth because I've been able to make decisions for myself, like, I don't know, using less plastic and seeing literally there is less waste in my rubbish bin. And because of that, I know that that is possible to ask for that to be easier for more people to do at a bigger scale. Um, yeah, thinking a lot about scale and size. And it has to come from believing where, where the hope starts is like the tangible stuff that is like within your reach within the places that you can walk within the people that you talk to regularly and transformation can happen there and then transformation can get bigger than that but because that small transformation is possible bigger transformation is possible and they're just many many wonderful and interesting and thoughtful and faithful people around the world doing their best to make more more justice possible more love possible for the communities they live in what what is your most controversial opinion? If you were in a room, other people from your field, what's something you would disagree with everyone else about? So I actually I really feel like I'm trying not to have opinions that I express publicly at this stage of my life, which is kind of funny to say at the end of a podcast where I've had a lot of opinions. I have a lot of really inane opinions that I can and I think I'm kind of wary that I'm like quite good at writing and expressing myself relatively and that I can like say all sorts of bullshit and make it sound really convincing and 
I don't want to like cement myself. I'm like, I really hope that I disagree with lots of the things I say right now in the future. <laughs> I really hope so. I do have a lot of hot takes. Uh, I think like, I think actually that that forgiveness is possible. I don't know when you're going to release this podcast, I don't know how much I want to do things that were in the news this week, but with the um, National MP who was revealed to be a massive bully in the past this week. And there's a lot of stuff in the media where a big revelation is finding out about something that someone did in the past and sort of using it as a big gotcha moment and can those people ever come back from it? Can we ever write a sentence about that person without not mentioning it? And a lot of the people who, a lot of the people still get lots of attention and I, like, I don't necessarily believe in, like, cancel culture. But I just believe that, like, forgiveness should be real for people, even people who you disagree with, even people who did terrible things. And that doesn't necessarily mean they need to have, like, a massive media presence, but I just don't think that, like, things that people did, even the very, very worst things, should, you know, the most cruel kind of assault and murder and sort of ripping money off heaps of people because which maybe is connected to the hope thing like I just believe like a good place to start with for hope is that everybody even the people you most dislike or find very irritating is a beloved child of God who is loved more than you can ever understand even if they're really really wrong and they've done a really terrible thing and Jesus's forgiveness is just as much for that person that you dislike as it is for you even if their understanding of it is really different to you so I'm not sure how hot that take is, but it's something I think about a lot. Like, mm. what does it mean to treat people like you believe forgiveness is real? Mm. How does treating people like you believe forgiveness is real, real uh, play into your writing? Hmm. I mean, I guess I think quite a lot. There's this somewhat controversial Catholic writer in the US called Elizabeth Brunig who writes a lot about the death penalty and how... A lot of writing about the death penalty and saying the death penalty is bad focuses on people who were, you know, what if they're actually innocent and we killed them but they were actually innocent? But actually heaps of people who are given the death penalty are very well, they did the bad thing and they still shouldn't be killed, you know? Like, that's it. If you set it up like, oh, we can't do the death penalty because what if the person is innocent? Well, is that implying that if the person was actually did the whatever the terrible crime was, that they should be killed? Like, so I guess that's one way to think about it. Like, I think writing about crime is maybe a like more obvious example. I don't really know because I feel like I write a lot about sort of more abstract forces about like the internet and capitalism. I guess maybe it's a bit of like exposing yourself to people that you disagree with because I believe that they are a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God and so am I. And I think it makes it easier to talk to people you disagree with because you're like, ultimately, like, we both kind of suck, even if we have different <laughs> understandings of what that looks like. And we both can only find redemption through Jesus and not through anything else we could do. Yeah, so I think it's probably, it's especially good when you're in situations talking to people who you disagree with or find irritating. Because tries it makes me more patient, hopefully. Can you tell us what books you're reading at the moment? And also what books or articles or movies or podcasts have been formational for you throughout your life that you could recommend to us? Mm. Um, at the moment I am reading Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren, which is about our ordinary lives and how God loves us in our ordinary lives. That redemption of God actually isn't necessarily about 
doing extraordinary things and changing the world, but it's actually about something we can experience every single day. Um, I haven't got to the end yet, so I'm not quite sure. Um, and mm, I'm also reading, I need to finish it, Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott, which is just incredible, but also kind of dense, and I don't have heaps of headspace for it. Um, it's sort of about, like, the ideology of states and statecraft, particularly, like, modern statecraft. There's a great chapter about urban design, mm. and it's kind of anthropological, but kind of quite, like, theoretical. It's kind of like Jared Diamond, but the opposite of Jared Diamond, because it's not all, like, geographical determinism. It's more looking at, like, societal structures, but at a really big scale, big picture scale, so um, about what makes societies work and what doesn't. So I'm enjoying that a lot. That's very cool. Mm. Sounds really interesting. Yeah, would highly recommend if you want to feel smart and have great conversations. It's a great one to chuck in the mix. Um, Blowback is a great podcast. Both of you should listen to it if I haven't told you about it already. Yeah, that's been um, recommended to me a few times. What yeah. is it about? It's it's sort of like it's a very it's very good for people like us who <laughs> slightly younger and did not live through historical events. Um, it's it's sort of like a history of the American Empire. So the first one, the first series looks at the Iraq War and kind of what led up to it and just you know, if you just want to feel really mad about American foreign policy, which I do on like a regular basis, it's really good. And then the next one is about the Cuban missile leading up to the Cuban missile crisis. And the one that they're releasing at the moment is about the Korean War. Um, so that, I really like that framing of thinking about the American mm -hmm. Empire. I think that's super useful. I really, I've recommended Station Eleven to a lot of people, and it's a very popular book, but it is for good reason. It's just, like, incredibly intensely thoughtful. Just really delightful. You have to be in the right state of mind. It's got a big pandemic in it, but just like people loving each other and there's a sort of hopeful post-apocalyptic story which I quite enjoyed. Um, I guess for a final book I could list so so many things but I'm going to list something that I haven't read for a long time so I really hope I would still stand by it if I reread it but it's called My Name is Asha Lev and it's um, you read it. Yeah, you? Yeah, Yeah. I, I love most of his books. I would love to read it again actually. I read it when I was maybe like 15 or 16 the writing is really good and really interesting and I always think that people should read books that weren't written in the last five years, mm -hmm. although most of the books that were written in the last five years are what I read. But um, just this sort of idea of, like, the human desire for profound profundity, I guess, is, I think that was at the, like, real heart of, yeah, the real heart of that book. Yeah, anyway, I mean, again, maybe it's just me being super Christian, but I like that idea that, like, there's something compelling about Jesus that mm. in the Jesus story, which doesn't fit into the standard human narrative of, you know, good guy, bad guy, end of, good guy, bad, bad guy, like, good defeats bad, end of story, or bad defeats good, but there'll be, like, a super, there'll be a kind of follow-up to the superhero movie in sort of two years' time, using even more budget, like, it's actually, that there's something about, like, redemption, and there's something about the cross that kind of defies language. I don't, um, and really interesting how that interacted with Judaism in the book. I feel really wary at the moment. I'm trying to read a lot of like writing from beyond Europe, US, UK, New Zealand. I'm trying to read a bit of translated fiction. So I also recently really enjoyed a book called Karachi Vice, which is about what living in the Pakistani city of Karachi is like. That was really good as well. Anyway, I don't have so many book recommendations. 
Oh my gosh, now I just like wanted to recommend poetry, but I'm gonna hold myself oh, back. Oh, Ooh. let's make this favorite topic. The Dangerous Country of Love and Marriage was recommended to me in this very building by one John Denison. It is like my comfort poems. It's so beautiful. Weird for us to ask you to read a poem on our podcast. Oh my book? goodness. Okay, check it. Okay, here we go. Here we go. This is this is a good one. Um, okay, it's called Rhetorical by Amy Lee Wicks. Dear God, here's a 10 second pause. I'm back and I was counting the whole time. The hills are wrinkled green blankets draped over giant furniture. I want to have the sunset mean to me what it meant to Emily Dickinson. I want to talk to the supercilious sun about its blue-grey smoke lit up with the ridiculous pinks of a dancehall girl. I want to be the dancehall girl again, twirling and smacking my bubblegum lips, holding on to the man with oil-field boots and wolf howl in his laugh. Maybe I gave away all of my books because they were too quiet. Maybe I want them back because of the hole they can fill in my bookshelf. That's one of my favourites. Why you have your phone? Can I ask one more last question? <laughs> what is your favourite app that you have on your phone? I'm trying to think of, like, I, am I allowed to say my email? Because I love, I receive a lot of, like, really boring emails and work emails. And I have, like, 800 emails I'm going to need to deal with tomorrow morning. But I love getting emails from people who I love in my email. I just love, like, I think <laughs> writing emails to people individually is, like, my favourite kind of writing because I can, like, tailor it just for that person. And both of you have been the one receiving the end of some of my dramatic beautiful hopefully um entertaining emails and i can i think like when i'm in the right headspace i like write a great email i like write a better email than i can write almost anything else so and then i get really great emails back although it's a bit of an issue because then i'm like oh wow now i have to reply to them and then you're like sort of like constant like debt to the email gods but mm. i also love my email newsletters like obsessed with all these all these like people who i maybe don't know but they write to me as if like people you've subscribed to kind of thing yeah I love your emails. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming and chatting with us. Thank you so much. We love you great questions. so much. We're such big fans of your work. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. We're big fans of both of you too. So Fantastic. Fantastic. Privilege and honor. Privilege and honor. Indeed. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so much.